Father, in our songs this morning, we all have already confessed that we were once in darkness and yet did not know it. Father, in recognition of our finite selves, at some level, there is always darkness on this side of heaven. So we pray that you would use this time as we look at your word to bring light, to open our minds, to speak truth to us, to conform us to your image. That your name might be lifted up and honored amongst us. Do this, God, for our good. Do this for your own glory. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. December 7th, 1941 was the day that Japan bombed Pearl Harbor Harbor and officially launched the U.S. into World War II. To my parents' generation, December 7th, 1941, my parents' generation who fought that war, they almost universally say the same thing when they hear that date. Do you know what it is? A day that will live in infamy. Say December 7th, 1941. A day that will live in infamy. My generation's December 7th, 1941 is what? 9-11? 2001, a day when 12 men hijacked large planes, planes designed to shuttle workers and vacationers. They took those planes and they drove them into the World Trade Towers in New York. Drove it into the Pentagon here in Washington. If the line most remembered from December 7th is a day that will live in infamy, what is, what is, what is it that follows September 11th? I wonder if you'd agree this line. Where was God? Where was God in the midst of that misguided, heinous, life-taking moment? Anne Olenoff, a professor of psychiatry and religion at Union Theological Seminary in New York City, answered this way. Where was God on 9-11? What kind of God is this? Is this the God I believe in? Can I still believe in this God? The test of any religion is, what do you do with the bad? September 11th is so horrible and horrible for years and years to come that it can just smash any image of God who has a providential plan for me. The all-good God can be smashed. Rabbi Brad Hirschfield, an Orthodox rabbi living in New York City, wrote this. There's a piece of me that wants a very personal, very nurturing, very caring God. I know I need that God. I also know it's ridiculous at another level to believe in that God. Because if that God exists, that God was dethroned a long time ago. Whether that God was dethroned at Ground Zero, or in Rwanda, or in Auschwitz, I don't know. But that God was dethroned a long time ago. One more, Reverend Joseph Griesick, an Episcopal priest in Manhattan who served at Ground Zero, wrote this. Prior to September 11th, the face of God for me was one that was strong. Secure, consistent, a face that while at times seemed distant can be more or less to be counted on to be there. After September 11th, the face of God was a blank slate for me. God couldn't be counted on in the way that I thought God could be counted on. God seemed absent. It was frightening because the attributes that I had depended upon in the past when thinking about the face of God had all been Stripped away. A Christian psychiatrist, an Orthodox rabbi, an Episcopal priest, if they had God, they all seemed to lose him amidst tragedy. To use their words, God was smashed, 
dethroned, stripped away. Difficulty strikes, even tragedy, and God is questioned, ignored, attacked, even killed in the minds of some. Where was God on September 11, 2001, when the father trapped on the 30th floor of Tower 2? For that matter, where was God on September 11, 1943, for a young Jewish woman trapped in Barrack 5 in the Birkenau concentration camp? And for that matter, where was God on September 11, 1843, for the boy trapped in slavery, housed in a floorless, unmarked cabin on the nicely sounded Magnolia Plantation? Have you ever wondered, where is God? When you witness horrors out there, when you feel the pains in here, where is God? Where is God when I lose my job and I lose my dad? Where is he? When I lose my dignity? When I lose, you're thinking about something right now, fill in that blank. When I lose, where is God? You believers, those of you who know Christ, have you ever asked yourself, why do I bother to read my Bible and go to the church? The neighbor and the coworker and that relative who doesn't care a lick about God seems to prosper. Me? I read 1 John and 2 John and 3 John and John 3.16 and John Calvin and John Piper and... My life looks no better. You start pointing your finger. Where is God? Why is He silent? What gain is there? Why does everyone around me, these non believers especially, do these wicked things, even prosper and escape? They get rich and I'm poor. They're healthy and I'm sick. God must not care. Sacrifice for what? Eternal rewards? I can't even pay tomorrow's bills. Eternal rewards? Can you relate? Can you relate to the heart of this message, of this question? Well, if you came looking for a word from God this morning, I've got good news. God has spoken to us on this very condition. He did it through a prophet named Malachi. And even better news, though I would quickly admit that a lot of the Old Testament is kind of hard to understand. Malachi, he speaks our language. He speaks our words. Let me give you some background on Malachi before we jump in. So biggest picture, God has chosen a people for himself. He named them Israel. And when they proved to be unfaithful in a covenant that he made with them, he put them out of this promised land. He put them into exile. Malachi is addressing this same community, only now the Lord has restored them back to the promised land. They're no longer in exile Their external circumstances upon their return were initially pretty hopeful. You know, that that first temple was torn down. The second temple is now rebuilt. That, That temple represents the very symbol of God's presence in their midst. The renewal of the sacrifices caused the people to rejoice. We know this from Ezra. The people had renewed their covenant. We know this from Nehemiah. But things went south. There was nothing to indicate God's presence, that he had actually returned and filled the temple with glory. Ezekiel predicted that. The messianic age had not yet arrived. The people were still subject to Persian rule. The days of miracles just seemingly vanished with Elijah and Elisha. Crops failed. Religious activities became a burden. They didn't seem to matter. This new era that started with such promise and hope, it was just disappointment. 
Those were the kind of external circumstances. Theologically speaking, what undergirds this book is the idea of a covenant. A covenant's been broken. And it is at the root of this dispute between God and his chosen people. Let me read to you the covenant way back from Deuteronomy 7 that God had made with this people. For you are a people holy to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his treasured possession. Out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth, it was not because you were more in number than any of the other people that the Lord set his love on you and chose you. For you were the fewest of all peoples. But it was because the Lord loves you and is keeping the oath that he swore to your fathers. Know therefore that the Lord your God is God, the faithful God who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments. You shall therefore be careful to do the commandment and the statutes and the rules that I command you today. The book of Malachi begins with God speaking, yet another expression of his love for the people and his reminder to them that he's still committed to them. He's still in this. Israel? Israel's basic sin is breaking this covenant. And what we'll read this morning are the particulars of how they broke the covenant. So Malachi, it, Malachi means messenger. If you've, if you've named your son Malachi, it's a good name. God has sent him to confront the people of Israel, to warn them. And as, as we look through these verses, we unpack them. Keep in mind that Malachi's overarching task, God's overarching purpose is to keep faith alive. Keep faith alive. And I trust that's why we're here. For that same reason. Malachi takes us right into the middle of this confrontation between God and Israel. Like in a court case, we're seeing six disputes that are presented. They're argued and counter-argued. Each dispute teaches us a positive and fundamental quality about God. Each time God speaks, he says something about his own character. Now, Wyeth and... And Jeremy have already ably taken us through those first three disputes. In, in short, they said, God said, I love you. I'm a father and a master. I'm creator of all. And Israel, in this audacious pushback, says, no, you don't. How have you loved us? Our task today is to understand those final three disputes and the necessary response so if you're a note taker, here's the outline, okay? God answers that question of where is God by saying, I'm here. And number one, I am weary. I am weary. Number two, I'm coming, refining, and judging. Number three, I am watching. Number four, I am listening. And number five, I am sparing. Sparing. I'll give those to you again as we go through. First, this first one. Let's look in your, in your Bible. Beginning in chapter 2, verse 17. Number one, the Lord is saying, I'm here and I am weary. I am weary. Chapter 2, verse 17. You have wearied the Lord with your words. But you say, how have we wearied him? By saying, everyone who does evil is good in the sight of the Lord, and he delights in them. Oh, here's an age-old problem. Doubting God's character when we see evil men prosper. Why are those people prospering, and we, the righteous, are not? God must not care. God must not be in control. God must be smashed. What is going in, on in the heart of men at these moments? We grow cynical and unbelieving. We abandon all intention of taking right and wrong seriously. We abandon all notion of God's word being true. God's apparent inaction 
becomes an excuse for our atheism, for our unbelief. And we mischaracterize God. So the the theological reflection of the Israelites here in Malachi, it was leading them away from God rather than to God. They were relying on observation, what they could see, instead of relying on God's spoken word. Relying on what he had already told them is true. If they would have gotten it right, they would have known that God is patient. The wicked were trading on that patience. And those who were observed... Have you ever wondered, wouldn't it be just simpler if God judged instantly? We wouldn't know immediately if we've done something right or wrong. It'd be obvious to both the sinner, the one sinned against, and the entire community. Might induce us to sin less. Wouldn't it be easier if God just defended those under attack? Rescue the oppressed and the innocent, reward faith, endurance, and sacrifice immediately? We never have to ask a question that should quickly be ruled out of bounds. It assumes that God should serve us. (laughs) That God should somehow meet our expectations, our timetable. Somehow God is answerable to us? He's not. He's not. Romans 9.20 reminds us of that. Who are you, O man, to answer back to God? Will what is molded say to its molder? Why have you made me like this? Has the potter no right over the clay to make out of the same lump one vessel for honored use and another for dishonorable use? So why does God wait? Why does he delay his judgment? Because of his mercy. He wants to give people time to repent. 2 Peter 3.9 The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you. Why? Not wishing that any might perish, but that all should receive repentance. The wages of sin is death. And all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. If God is to judge us at this moment of our sin, all would die. All. In His mercy and His great kindness and patience, God delays the return of Christ and His judgment so that the gospel may be preached so that men and women and boys and girls might repent and believe and be saved. That's why he doesn't judge us right away. To Israel's unbelief, God responds, you have wearied the Lord with your words. That's the first point. The second point. God's saying, I'm here, and I'm coming, refining, and I'm judging. So now we're looking at chapter 3, verses 1 to 5. Listen. Behold, I send my messenger, and he will prepare the way before me. And the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple. And the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight, behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. But who can endure the day of his coming? And who can stand when he appears? For he is like a refiner's fire and like fuller's soap. He will sit as a refiner and purifier of silver. And he will purify the sons of Levi and refine them like gold and silver. And they will bring offerings in righteousness to the Lord. And the offering of Judah and Jerusalem will be pleasing to the Lord as in the days of old, as in the former years. Then I will draw near to you for judgment. I will be a swift witness against the sorcerers, against the adulterers, against those who swear falsely, 
against those who oppress the hired worker in his wages, the widow and the fatherless, against those who thrust aside the sojourner and do not fear me, says the Lord of hosts. God has had enough. I'm sending my messenger. We know that later to be who? John the Baptist? And I'm sending him as a warning. And then I, the Lord, will return. And I will set all things right by setting you right. Some I will judge and some I will refine. Those who do not fear me, I will judge. Those who fear me, I will refine. All right, what's that mean? Let's look at this refining idea first. What is this refiner's fire and fuller soap that God compares himself to? Notice that it does not say, I am like a forest fire. Forest fires just burn indiscriminately, right? Doesn't care if a big house or a little house is there, it just burns. And notice he, he doesn't say, I'm like an incinerator. An incinerator burns everything. He's like a refiner's fire, a purifying fire, a fire that separates, separates the parts that ruin the value of silver, but leaves the silver intact, leaves that which is precious still there, burns off the rest. He's got a refiner's fire. What is this fuller soap? It's not the kind of soap we enjoy today. It's not soft soap. It's not creamy dove soap. Fuller soap is a harsh detergent, and it was used to bleach, to bleach cloth, to get rid of stains. God is like the refiner's fire, the fuller's soap. He's out to purify people. What's that mean? To make them holy. He wants to burn off the dross and bleach out the stains the evil among us. Why? Because God's chosen people are people made in His image and called to reflect that image. Be holy. Why? Because I am holy. God's people then and now are bought at a price, adopted to be sons and daughters, included in the family of God. And now we're called to live like it. God's passion for his people's purity is not to be played with any more than fire is to be played with. We teach our children, don't play with fire, right? Don't play with this fire. Take it seriously. But this refiner's fire, it's going to sound a little weird, should bring hope. <laughs> it should instill hope in you. And this might even sound a little weirder. Embrace that refiner's fire. There is no pain-free path to heaven. <laughs> We'll leave that to Joel Osteen, right? We'll leave that to the prosperity preachers. I don't mind calling him out. He's not going to preach this message. What do you do with Malachi? What do you do with Zechariah? What do you do with Isaiah? What do you do? What do you do? What do you do with Jesus? Jesus said. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Purity comes through this refining fire. 1 Peter 1, 6-7. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you've been grieved by many trials. 
so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. James 1, 2-4. Count it all joy. <laughs> fire? I'm going to count this joy. Count it all joy. When you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. Hebrews 12, 14 says, Strive for holiness without which no one will see the Lord. Israel's mistake and our temptation is to mistake this refiner's fire for a lack of love, provision, or power on the part of God. That's a big mistake. Not all will be refined. Some will be consumed. That's what verse 5 is about. Can you imagine having God as a swift witness against you? The one who knows all things and sees all things laying bare your life, it will be a swift, swift witness, it says. He will judge all those who do not fear me, he says at the end of verse 5. If you feared God, you wouldn't mess with adultery and false gods and cheating workers and widows. If you feared God, you wouldn't put chains on humans, you wouldn't build massive gas chambers, and you wouldn't fly planes into towers. If, if you've been around church for any length of time, this word fear... I think it's been gutted of its intended meaning. Maybe with, maybe with good intentions. I mean, don't we want to make God look approachable and friendly? <laughs> when I hear people talk about the fear of God or the fear of the Lord, you can almost count on it being followed up with the words, fear doesn't mean be afraid, it means reverence. <laughs> really? What's reverence mean? Look it up in the dictionary. The root words, revere. The first word. It means fear. <laughs> it means to be awestruck. To find this thing so awesome that you want to hide your face. Fear doesn't mean fear. It means reverence. No, it doesn't. <laughs> it means to be afraid. What on earth was Jesus talking about when he said, Do not fear those who kill the body, but cannot kill the soul. Rather, fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. Have you ever read Jesus' words on hell? It's something to be feared. How can we then be sure to experience the fire of God as refining and not consuming? The answer is, cannot be that we get rid of our own sin any more than silver separates itself from dross. We can't do that. The answer is to fear God. Fear dishonoring Him. Fear ignores, ignoring His magnificent mercy demonstrated on the cross when He gave His own Son to die in our place. Fear dishonoring this sacrifice. Fear dishonoring him in unbelief. Salvation is by grace through faith. Faith that God will call you and refine you and sustain you and deliver you. Oh, friends, fear God. Fear God. That's number two. I'm here, and I'm coming, and I'm refining, and I'm judging. Number three, I'm here, and I'm watching. 
Malachi 3, verses 6 to 12. For I, the Lord, do not change. Therefore you, O children of Jacob, are not consumed. From the days of your fathers you have turned aside from my statutes and have not kept them. Return to me, and I will return to you, says the Lord of hosts. But you say, how shall we return? Will man rob God? Yet you are robbing me. But you say, how have we robbed you? In your tithes and contributions, you are cursed with a curse. For you are robbing me, the whole nation of you. Bring the full tithe into the storehouse, that there may be food in my house. And therefore, put me to the test, says the Lord of hosts. If I will not open the windows of heaven for you and pour down for you a blessing until there is no more need, I'll rebuke the devourer for you so that it will not destroy the fruits of your soil. Your vine in the field shall not fail to bear, says the Lord of hosts. Then all the nations will call you blessed, for you will be a land of delight, says the Lord of hosts. This is the fifth of six disputes, and the Lord begins with the declaration of his own character. I, the Lord, do not change. Why does he say that? The people in this case are accusing him of abandoning them, of being unreliable or inconsistent or double-tongued, saying one thing, doing another. And the Lord fires back, no, I'm not. I am not. I do not change. And that, the lack of, the, the fact that I don't change is why you still exist. Why The reason why you have not perished. Verse 6, God calls Israel the children of Jacob. Why does he do that? The people of Israel are physical descendants of three generations of patriarchs. Abraham, Isaac and Jacob. And God covenanted with these fathers of the faith. Their existence as God's people depends on the choice and election of God. God promised their forefathers. He made a covenant with them. In short, he's saying, I made a promise. I do not change. Therefore, you do not perish. Despite how you're behaving. For the Christian, it's the same unchanging character. <laughs> His electing love that is the basis of our confidence that nothing will be able to separate us from the love of God in the Christ Jesus our Lord. That's Romans 8. Verse 7, it seems as though God is almost begging here. Return to me, and I'll return to you, says the Lord of hosts. You think you've gone too far? You think there's too much water under the bridge? God hasn't given up. He's working to restore and strengthen his relationship with his chosen people. He's calling them to return. Israel answers, how shall we return? Now, no theologian, no writer of commentaries thinks this is an innocent plea like, Lord, we want to return, but we don't know how. No, it's in light of the whole message of Malachi and the people's typical response, it's more like saying, have we done anything wrong? We haven't turned away. The sad part is that they don't even know how far gone they are. <laughs> so God tries to prove it. Verse 8, will man rob God? You are robbing me. But you say, how have we robbed you? In your tithes and contributions, you are cursed with a curse, for you are robbing me, the whole nation of you. Bring the full tithes into the storehouse, that there may be food in my house. Is it an absurd notion that little old us can rob God? Good luck with that, right? But here's God, through his prophet Malachi, saying, you are robbing me. How? All right, the tithes and offerings were the way the people were to provide financial support for the operations of the temple, for the support of the priests, and to meet the needs of the poor in the community. So when God's talking before about the widow, about the sojourner, he's talking about those. You're not helping those people. In fact, you're ripping them off. 
This is God's way of providing for these destitute ones through this tithe. So not contributing to the temple, not contributing to the poor is the equivalent of robbing God. God says, put me to the test. Go ahead. Contribute. Give. Test me. See if I don't open up the windows of heaven. <laughs> Pour down for you a blessing until there's no more need. I'll rebuke the devourer, the one who destroys your fruit, your vine. Not only will you see this, but all those other nations, those nations filled with idolatry, they'll look in on you and they'll see that. And they'll know that is, what's it say? The land of delight. Here the visible sign of God's blessing was prosperity as the visible sign of his curse was poverty. Is this still true today? The rich are blessed and the poor are cursed. Well, it wasn't even true back then. In the Old Testament, poverty and riches really had a variety of meanings. Poverty actually might be a sign of the righteous person being persecuted. Look at Psalm 70. Or a righteous person having their trust in God tested. Read Job. And the riches were not always a sign of obedience. Rich people in the Old Testament were often opposed to God and oppressed God's people. In several cases, God used the unrighteous and wealthy to discipline and shape his people for his own glory. Think about Pharaoh in Egypt and the Babylonians when Israel's in exile. It would be a disaster for a poor, righteous person to think that his poverty represented the curse of God as much as it would be a disaster for a wealthy arrogant person to think that his riches meant that God approved of him. It doesn't work that way. This whole section could be summed up with return to me. Don't rob me. Return to me. Don't rob me. Number four, I'm here and I'm listening. I am listening. Malachi 3 Verses 13 to 15. Your words have been hard against me, says the Lord. But you say, how have we spoken against you? you? The Lord responds by saying, you have said, it is vain to serve God. What is the profit of our keeping his charge or of walking as in mourning before the Lord of hosts? And now we call the arrogant blessed. Evildoers not only prosper, but they put God to the test and they escape. This is the last of the six disputes. If we can put down our devices and push away our distractions, just sit quietly for a moment, we may be faced with an embarrassing and even painful thought that might sound close to the heart of Israel in this message. We might say, I have subjected myself to the refiner's fire. I've practiced self-denial and maybe even suffered my, for my profession of faith. I have given my money to the cause of Christ. I've moved to places I didn't even want to for the sake of the gospel. What have I got for all this? What a... Have the sacrifices been worthwhile? What reward do I have for my obedience and service to God? Am I better off than any of my neighbors for following God? The, the question in Israel's case and ours really reveals orientation. It's fundamentally self-centered rather than God-centered. There's this deep and 
destructive, life-sucking tendency to look to the left and to the right instead of up. What's that bring? Envy. Envy of those who have not bothered to consider God's commands and express any regret to sorrow, sorrow for their sin. And we put words to our thoughts. The arrogant, God-ignoring, are blessed. These evildoers not only prosper, but they test God and they escape. We've done it, haven't we? I have. When I, my wife and I and two little kids first moved to the city 25 years ago, I can't tell you how many times my car got broken into. I wanted to put a sign on it, please don't smash my window. I left the doors unlocked. And if you come in, you're only going to find my Altoids. There's nothing there. <laughs> Our house was broken into. The front door, basement door was kicked in, ransacked. Things precious to us were taken. We didn't have extra money. Nobody was caught. Nobody arrested. There was no punishment. God, where is this hedge of protection? Where is this shield about me that we sing about? A friend of mine in college, after a bad storm one night, went outside the next morning to discover that a massive tree had fallen square on top of his 1970s VW Beetle. Right in the middle. Smashed it. Do you know what he said? Lord, why'd you do this to your car? <laughs> why is the drug dealer driving a BMW and I can't keep my nasty minivan on the road for more than 60 days? Why does the girl in my school who sleeps around and gets drunk and lies to her parent get a new car and I'm stuck in the back of that nasty minivan that my dad won't get rid of? Why does the movie star or the musician get richer and more popular and literally spews anti-God messages? And me? I'm having the minivan towed because my husband won't trade it in. Lord, why? Why does that man or that woman have a voice in our political arena? The boasting is incredible. It's deafening. And I know when they get elected, they're just going to tax my minivan. You know? <laughs> Stupid minivan. You know? Why do I follow God and feel like the loser? This is the heart of the complainer. He issues hard words, it says in verse 16. This is really the heart of someone who doesn't believe, who doesn't trust, who doesn't hope in the promises made by the promise keeper. He doesn't delight himself in the knowledge of God above all things that he can see, that he can touch, that he can possess. He doesn't savor his relationship with Jesus any more than the things he can buy. This is really the heart of an idolater. And we've got to get to the point of our psalmist in Psalm 73 that, that Connie read to us earlier. He said, I love the transparency of that psalm. If you want a good meditation this afternoon, go back to Psalm 73. He complains, like, just like I've been saying, what on earth is going on here, Lord? And then right in the middle of that psalm, he says this, when I thought, how to understand this, it seemed a wearisome task to me until, until I went into the sanctuary of God, then I discerned their end. Whose end? The wicked's end. He sees that evildoers are on slippery places and fall to ruin and are destroyed in a moment. And the psalmist can finally declare, who have I in heaven but you? <laughs> and there is nothing on earth that I desire other than you. At the 
back in 2012 at the T4G Pastors Conference, Pastor Ligon Duncan put it this way. This is how God works. He gets at our most fundamental idolatry and he ruthlessly crushes it in his unfathomable love and his fatherly kindness and inscrutable wisdom and he goes after our greatest treasure and he leaves us with nothing but himself so that we go limping on our way for the rest of our lives having learned that my grace is sufficient for you for my power is perfected in weakness. Leaves us with nothing but himself. Is that poverty? Or is that incomparable riches? Number five, I'm here and I'm sparing. I'm sparing Malachi 3, verse 16 to 18. Then those who feared the Lord spoke with one another. Finally, <laughs> finally, right? Those who feared the Lord spoke with one another. The Lord paid attention and heard them. And a book of remembrance was written before him of those who feared the Lord and esteemed his name. Finally, a response, a positive response. Those who feared the Lord spoke. <laughs> In the same way God heard the words of the complainers, he, he heard the words of this remnant, this small group that doesn't doubt, doesn't question, doesn't reject God. This little band fears the Lord. They tremble at the thought of offending him with disobedience, with unbelief. They realize that God is not to be trifled with. It's the opposite of the attitude of the people in verses 13 to 15 with this audacious swagger, say, it is vain to serve God. <laughs> Those who fear God shudder at the thought of speaking against their majestic Father. This remnant esteemed his name. They held the name of God in such high regard that they abandoned any thought of trotting out their finite, puny thoughts against his wisdom. Here was a people who thought it unthinkable to question God's timing or method of dispensing his blessings. Hallowed be thy name. God's name and judgment will be fully vindicated. He will set all things right and a clear line between the righteous and the wicked, between the humble and the arrogant, between those who do and those who do not serve the Lord, will be drawn. Verse 17, They shall be mine, says the Lord of hosts, in the day when I make up my treasured possession, and I will spare them as a man spares his son who serves him. Then once more you shall see the distinction between the righteous and the wicked, between one who serves God and the one who does not serve him. The insolent complainers declared that evildoers escape. But here the Lord promises that a day is coming when these will see just how wrong they were. The faithful believers whose names are written in the book of remembrance, it will be a day when God will say, they shall be mine. My treasured possession. And they will be spared the way a man spares his son who serves him. Won't that be a sweet day? Won't that be a great day? Where was God? Do you think that question wearies the Lord? I do. I think it says, I know better than God. And that's ironic. 
creature, judging the creator. Don't mistake God's patience as indifference. He's promised to suddenly come, but this time for judgment. What should you do? Repent of your sin. Fear the Lord. Esteem his name. Ask him to spare you. Subject yourself to the refiner's fire while you can. Fear God. Number yourself among the righteous. Be distinct from the world. You know, if there were ever a man who could have said, where was God? It would have been Job. Job lost everything. He seemingly had everything, and he lost everything. But Job's response to God's word coming was confession and repentance. Listen. I know that you can do all things, and that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. Who is this that hides counsel without knowledge? Therefore, I have uttered what I did not understand, things too wonderful for me which I did not know. Hear, and I will speak. I will question you, and you make it known to me. I heard of you by the hearing of the ear, but now my eye sees you. What's his response? Therefore, I despise myself and repent in dust and ashes. Where was God? Psalm 115.3 says, Our God is in the heavens. He does all that He pleases. Our God is in the heavens. He does all that He pleases. including welcoming repentant sinners. Welcoming them to the refiner's fire. To be purged, to be ready, to be made holy, to reflect His holy image. 